Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, thank you for joining me today. Today on Behavior Babes Podcast, I'm excited to have our guest, Donna Miller. Donna, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. Yeah, I'm excited to have a conversation. It's been a while since we've connected. But before we begin, let's start by having you give an introduction of yourself for our listeners. Sure. Um, well, I am one of the co-founders of Pass the Big ABA Exam. Um, and what some people don't know about me is that uh, my first career was um, a Broadway performer. I'm actually a singer-actress, which I still do on the side, but that's not my day job anymore. <laughs> But yeah, that's uh, what I'm doing these days is exam prep. Where do you live? How did you get oh, into yes. exam prep? Tell us more. Do you have okay. pets? <laughs> uh, yes, I can tell you all that. Um, I live in Los Angeles. Um, I got into exam prep. I have a dog. I'll, I'll knock that one out. His name is Jack and he is terribly behaved. Uh, so <laughs> I would never bring him on any sort of job interview because he definitely does not make me look like a confident behavior analyst. Um, and I got into exam prep, you know, I kind of, I'm one of these people that sort of falls into things. I, I've never like make conscious choices and end up, and I know that's not a very deterministic way to look at my <laughs> life, but, but it's true. Um, so I, uh, my partner Priya Runyon and I were having lunch one day before we were partners. We were just at that time, colleagues and friends. And we were talking about, you know, the exam and our experience with it and our friends who we knew were having a hard time. And it sort of led into a conversation of the types of studiers we were and what was helpful. And, you know, it, it turned into kind of a funny conversation because we were such different learners. Uh, Priya is kind of a nutty professor and I'm very organized. And so, you know, it was kind of my way of um, I had very structured notes and everything was really neat. And Priya was like different fonts and kind of chaos, but like an organized chaos. And um, and we sort of amalgamated our two processes and started to help people here and there. And very quickly, it shifted into meeting with people in small, you know, conference rooms and then small agencies calling us and then um and then people heard around heard about us around the country. And so we started to have to get creative because we were in person until that happened. And so we had to start, um, you know, coming up with cool ways to see people remotely. And this is um, over 10 years ago. So this is Zoom uh, just was starting to happen. So we were still doing like Google chats and things like that. But um but uh, then we learned about Zoom before everybody else in the world. We should have invested in it, right? Who knew there was going to be? A oh, I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing in Hawaii, already working and doing telehealth prior to the pandemic. I thought, man, why did I not invest in Zoom? I mean, it's crazy, right? So yeah, and that's it. And then I guess the rest is just history. We, you know, the material sort of turned into the manual, uh, the lectures turned into video and audio that is available on demand and basically have spent the last 10 years just trying to perfect it and be better at it. I sort of joke that I, I spent my days studying for the exam. Um, and I do, I really do. That's all I do is study and keep studying. And I hope I pass if I had to take it again. I, I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> you know, I find it so interesting. And I, I love that you ask or share that curiosity. For several years, I was supporting in, in the role of an instructor for some exam prep. 
what I felt like one time during that experience, it was a weekly opportunity where people part of the group could call in and ask any question they wanted. And so I always felt like I was doing like my final oral exams over and over again every week. And I was like, I feel like I can't get past like um, uh, the graduate, like final exam, you know, it was like that groundhog's day. Uh, and I did, I actually posted and was like, you know, I'm going to retake the exam, like, because it's changed, like, let's see what happens. And I don't know if it was that Jim Carr from the BACD saw that, or if I said it to him, but what he said was, Amanda, let me give you some context. If you take the exam now and you do not pass it for whatever reason, then you have to go and take all the additional coursework. You would then have to meet all the additional supervision requirements. And at one point, people could take the exam to re-up or, or maintain their certification, their CEs. That's no longer an option. And I'm glad um, because I think that that's probably not a good test of our growth and we want continuing education. Um, but I think it speaks to the fact that the exam itself can be very challenging. And that's really overwhelming for people before they even know anything about the exam. They just know, oh, it it doesn't have the highest uh, pass rate for the first time. So what, what are the experiences that you see or what are some of the barriers you're seeing or trends you see in people who are looking for support and preparing for the exam? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's something I'm constant. I'm always analyzing that, like, sort of, you know, who who is the person who's looking for exam prep? Because as we know, a lot of people just, you know, study on their own and they get the job done. I mean, you probably had to. Probably when you sat, there wasn't any exam prep, right? So <laughs> many years ago. Um, but one of the, I mean, the most common thing, and again, not gonna, another um, non-behavior thing, but. Um, Anxiety, right? Like it, there is something associated with being uh, evaluated with a permanent product, right? Like here, this is this thing. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that it's not a skills test. It's a knowledge test. Obviously, we can't really test our skills in in a multiple choice exam. And this is something I hadn't really even thought about until I was talking to Tyra Sellers. And she was the one who said that to me. And I was like, of course, because we would say things like, you know, put your board head on. Don't think about what you do at work. Just think about the task list and what's the board testing you on with this task list item. And she was the one that sort of, you know, put words to it and tacked it correctly for me, which was it's not skills, it's knowledge. And so I think people are insecure about what they know, especially because everybody's uh, clinical experience or applied experience is so different. And our bosses and clinical directors use different vocabulary. And there's so many synonymous terms and what we call AKAs. So it's scary that it's going to be a concept, you know, but presented with a different term or something like that. Um, and I guess the biggest barrier, and of course, when the board published this data, it reinforced that belief for me is the coursework, right? The sequences are not preparing people um, for the exam, which makes sense. I mean, they're not supposed to prepare you for the exam. They're supposed to teach you the content of the profession. But um, what was happening was a lot of students were coming to us with straight A's and yet hadn't seen several task list items before, right? Like hadn't mm -hmm. really, like we're looking at the task list and there were terms that were foreign to them. 
And um, at first that was kind of shocking. And I can't say I had like the greatest coursework ever. I mean, it was, it was pretty solid, but I had a lot of catching up to do. And it's not like I went to one of the fancy ABA schools or worked under one of the leaders in the field or had like really solid clinical supervision. I all, I had all good stuff, but it wasn't like it was at some university program with, um, you know, the, the coursework was sort of coupled with that. It was all fragmented for me. So I had to do a lot of catching up. So I understood I understood that person, um, you know, better than I understood somebody who came out of a top program with a high pass rate. Um, but I think that was the piece. It's that, you know, people were getting a false sense of security with their grades and then, mm -hmm. and also with their clinical uh, skills because they were doing really good work or they were getting really good feedback and they had happy clients. And so they felt expert. And then all of a sudden this, you know, complicated abstract science is put, being put in front of them. And it doesn't look anything like what their applied life looks like. And um, that's very scary. A lot of people act as if the exam is like a different language altogether. I mean, how often have you heard, I, I don't understand Cooper, it's too dense, it's over my head. And, you know, I always joke with students who say that, like, how would you feel if your medical doctor was like, you know what, I really know my stuff, but like, I just, those textbooks, they're just over my head. Like, wouldn't that be devastating? I'd be like, um, I'm going to get another doctor. Yeah, second opinion, you know, exactly. um, Donna, you've said so much here that I'd love to kind of break yeah. down and build, build. You have upon. to stop because I talk too much. I've you know what? Uh, pot calling a kettle would be the situation if I said <laughs> anything to you about right. that. Cool. Anxiety, you know, you, a couple of things you said, not really behavioral, but it is, you know, we, we can see and understand and people are capable of self-report. And one of the things that I was experiencing as I was helping people with the exam was that they couldn't get out of their own way. Right. I would say the majority of the time there were things to, to, to build in, there were some splintered or fragmented skills, but the majority of the barrier that I saw overwhelmingly was people feeling really anxious. Mm -hmm. And for them, they would describe that as just a history of challenges with tests, staying up all night, poor eating habits that get increased. Those things are going to impact us. One of the pieces of advice that I would give people that they often would not take, and they would tell me later, I didn't listen to you, Amanda. And I'm like, well, that was totally your prerogative and choice. When I say, take the last week off before your exam, take it off, go to your favorite restaurant, have a bubble bath. If that suits you do the things, take a walk that you enjoy that you haven't been doing while going to graduate school. Uh, the same would be true for lawyers studying for the bar. You know, you get all the information, you take all this time to do that. But the night before the two days before, that's not when you're going to absorb very certainly all of this knowledge. And so letting people have permission to engage in things that also contribute to self-care just prior to the testing window, I found was something that I didn't realize was going to become something I wanted to further develop my skill set in. It's like, okay, how do I coach and help people with those situations? And you also made a statement about, you know, the sequences and whether or not the course sequences are preparing or whether or not the university programs are preparing or whether or not the supervisor relationship is robust enough. I think we have just seen so much of a shift in where people are receiving that supervision. And it sometimes is it's who's assigned to you at where you're working and, you know, are they doing it because it was assigned to them or they vested in it. 
And even when everybody's doing all of the very best that they can, there's still so much to learn. So I didn't engage and there wasn't a formal study prep exam, but we created that within our cohort at the university that I attended. And I personally felt like I was probably the lowest performer in that group. I felt as though, and I mean, I was getting things right, but I was like, you know, like, oh, I was a bit nervous and all of these things. And what I want to tell people is like, in, surround yourself with people who have that knowledge, but also recognize that you can still be a very good, you will be an incredible analyst if you don't remember the definition of this term right now. But when you are preparing, when you want to make sure you can show that demonstration of knowledge, this is the environment in which you do need to demonstrate these skills and where it does look two-dimensional. You know, you mentioned the multiple choice and you also mentioned um, having this false sense of security with the grades um, or with their performance in graduate school. Do you think that there are more things that we could be doing at the graduate level? Or if so, what do you think that might look like for the students um, going through either course sequences or full programs? You know, I think about that a lot and I can't say that I have a, a solid answer. There's two things that come to mind right off the bat. The first is probably building in more multiple choice testing. Um, rather than, you know, reviewing articles and writing summaries and things like that, which I think is, well, I, by the way, I don't have any data. This is sort of anecdotal from having spoken to people. And so mostly what I hear is that students are, at least the ones that I've identified as struggling, they're not taking multiple choice tests in school. They're doing just more sort of written work. Um, and then I think the other piece is that, you know, the sense of, you know, when we go to conferences and we see each other and we see all the people that we know and we feel like we belong to this community, I think that's missing. I don't think people at the, as you call it, um, when we spoke earlier, the earlier stages of their careers or maybe while they're in school, I don't think they realize that this is like this exciting science and there's this whole community of interesting people that are willing to talk to you and connect with you um, that you didn't have to go to school with them. Like you can literally, as how we met, right? And how I've met many of my closest friends in ABA um, is just reaching out to people and you know, we're like-minded and let's connect and then realizing, wow, this is so awesome. And they've written this great thing and it's inspiring me and I'm going to write this thing. And, and I think they're not getting that sense in school. And I don't think it's the school's fault. I think a lot of students fall into ABA because there's work in ABA. So they didn't come to it because they had this passion for behavior analysis. They fell into it because there was work. There was money to be made. You know, you have a psychology degree or you're a do-gooder who's always thought, I want to work with kids and I want to work with, you know, neurodiverse kids. And, and so, and then you see on, you know, Indeed or Craigslist or something that, oh, there's a job helping kids with autism. And all of a sudden, all your, you know, young person dreams are about to come true. And so you're not thinking science. You're not thinking, I believe in environmental, you know, um, manipulation and thinking about how the environment can change behavior. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking I'm helping people. And so you don't have the passion for the science that gets you excited about furthering your knowledge and that thing. But um, so I think if the school could find a way to excite people and to really acquaint them with the community and um, 
and make them as excited about ABA or, or even just behavior science as they feel about Freud and psychology and some of the other more mainstream professions that are out there that people kind of know from, you know, junior high school, I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a doctor. I don't think a lot of junior high kids are like, I'm going to be a behavior analyst and take this tough test. I mean, even nurses, right, have people know that early on. So I don't know. And again, I'm just making this up, but I would say if, if, people, if we can excite the students about the field rather than having them fall into the field, um, if there, if there could be a reversal of trajectory, I don't know. Um, I love the imagery that you give there and the ideas that you provide because it seems very doable. You know, the requirements for becoming behavior analysts have only gotten more stringent. So yeah. it's not that we have less expectations. We actually have more and many yeah. ways of how do you then demonstrate? And I think another thing that is confusing to people is, okay, I'm a BCBA. Woohoo, I made it. And then they're like, oh, 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, great. I made it. And then I think there's this fear beyond the exam sometimes too that can be uh, creating avoidance behaviors for some of those things that we know are really helpful in preparing and presenting. And I love what you're talking about as far as this excitement. In my graduate program, it was on campus, it was live, but I distinctly remember that we were reading about signaled avoidance, right? And I'm like, okay, the reason why I remember this was because I had no idea no idea what Marie Simon was saying when I was reading that paper. I'm in graduate school and I'm reading it and rereading it and I'm supposed to reflect on it and I don't know what I read. And I remember our professor told us like the next day or the next class, I have um I have a surprise for you. And in and walked into this room was this like genteel uh, elderly man who was just very like peaceful and he smiled and he looked at us and I was like, oh, she brought her her father to class, the professor or something. And it was Marie Sigmund, Dr. Marie Sigmund. And he Gosh, stood wow. up and he gave a lecture um, or he just engaged with us. And it was like maybe 30 minutes. And I didn't feel like, okay, I'm an expert now in signal avoidance, but I was like, oh, like, I get it. I could hear his passion. I could understand his examples. I had a person in front of me that I wanted to lean in and fully like understand and show that I was attending. And I mean, I remember my first conference was uh, the same month that I graduated with my master's and we saw Dr. Murray Sidman and he was like, making a bagel. And it was like a celebrity to us. Yeah. Now I think about that and I think about just how memorable it was. And here I am 15 plus years talking about that. We have more opportunity now to connect with like-minded individuals, not like-minded individuals and have discussion and debates and know yeah. who to bring in and, and, and what voices to expose our students do. I love that. I, I I am currently teaching an ethics class and we have embedded in the class a lot of podcasts from other individuals, not all my podcasts, um, but also TED Talks and mm -hmm. having some guest speakers. And what I love about that is at the end of that class, I hope you've heard multiple voices. And um, I think perhaps I could even do more of it. So thank you for that feedback yeah. on behalf of professors. I think it's doable. Oh, it it's sounds so doable. doable. 
I think it's like anything, you know, when you like something, when you, you enjoy doing it, you're more likely to be successful, right? I mean, I think, isn't that one of the markers of good quality service that you're sort of reinforced by the outcomes, right? And sometimes when we talk about that with our students, they're surprised that that's actually a marker. And I'm like, look, that goes down to bare bones stuff. Like if the barista at Starbucks is intent on you having the best cup of coffee of your life, you're more likely to have the best cup of coffee than if you have a barista that could give to, you know, what's right. And they're just, they just want to get through their shift and get home. So same thing goes for ABA, same thing goes for studying for this exam. I mean, all of it, it's like, you just, you have to sort of fall in love with it to be successful in it. And I think a lot of students have that a little bit later on, they have their aha moment or they become, you know, they sort of become more behaviorally minded. That came late for me too. It, like you were saying, um, when you were in school, you thought you were the, you know, the underperformer or whatever. Um, I, worked very hard for to understand this stuff. It felt very abstract to me. It did not come easy. And I do remember a moment where it clicked. I just remember, and it sort of became this global understanding that was beyond the vocabulary, but then the vocabulary started to make sense and was less abstract and like meaningless. You know, people are always like, these words don't sound like anything. One day they do, like overnight it shifts as long as you sort of keep plugging away and trying to be clear for yourself. But fun, I think you have to love what you do. And if you don't, it's going to be harder to acquire and become fluent. Yeah, you speak to the motivation. Yeah. And so how to help people um, capture, remember, hold on to that motivation and not, not let it tip, you know, the scale too heavy with anxiety and, um, any other things that could lead to avoidance with this. I, I love to remind people and ask people, tell me why you're here. And that why has shifted. Um, I would say from a, in a generational, and this again is a narrative, it's not fully sampled, and, but recognizing that, like you said, is almost this reverse trajectory of uh, creating that inspiration and putting that into the forefront for individuals. I know for me, uh, I, I remember going to conferences and being like, oh, that person is not going to want to talk to me or, or who am I <laughs> to walk up to this person? And those are just thoughts in our head that we, I would say, need to let go of, or that once I let go of and realized how approachable people are, of course, read the room. If somebody's rushing to the restroom after their three-hour talk, like maybe let them go. I don't, <laughs> don't, don't stalk them in the bathroom, other tip. Um, but knowing that people are approachable and knowing that they are there to help and recognizing and seeing and believing that there's this whole community of people who support one another. But I will say that is not always the image that one could encounter on social media. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on kind of uh, the way in which we talk about behavior analysis on social media. Well, I think social media looks the same no matter what business you're in these days. And I think it's a, a dangerous place. Um, because it can really make people feel quite terrible. I, I picked up on some things in the early stages of, you know, I came to Facebook very late. Like I just resisted and resisted. And, um, and when I finally got on and like reconnected with people from junior high school and high school that I hadn't seen in decades, I, it was exciting. And I was like, this is amazing. Like you can keep up on people and you don't have to be best friends or anything, but you can know what's going on and how people are doing. 
but then there's this sort of other side of it, which, um, you know, I started to, I look at it as a student, like how, what are the students looking for? What are their questions? And the thing that was the worst is um, how many people feel comfortable either saying things that are not true or saying things that are um really unsupportive and uninclusive. I mean, if somebody were to post something like, you know, I'm really nervous about taking the test. I don't understand this and sort of let on quite honestly that they're not ready for this test. And maybe they're not the exact, you know, vision of what we as behavior and board certified people think our other board certified people should be the cruelty with which people respond. You should be able to pass into your coursework. I just took the test and passed. I just reviewed Cooper. People say the nastiest things and it really turns people off. And there's also this, um, well, I think we're seeing it now with this sort of more compassionate behavior analysis, right? The word compassion is being talked about a lot, like you hear it all the time. Um, I think we're re we need to rebrand. I think, you know, people have the idea that if they approach a behavior analyst, especially behind the guise of a computer screen, right, they're not going to get a compassionate and inclusive response, whether it's help for the exam, whether it's help for their clients, whether it's just, hey, does anybody do some other thing in ABA other than autism? I just see so many people responding not kindly. And then, of course, there's the other side of it. You know, there's people out there that are you know, DM me, get in touch with me, you know, one-on-one -on -one and having these Zoom meetings and talking to each other. So I think maybe if those of us that are, you know, more, I, I know you don't like the word veteran, but uh, more senior in the field, right? Or that have established ourselves a little bit more. If we put ourselves out there and let people know that like, you know, we're here to talk, we're here to help, we're here to guide, um, then, you know, I don't know, maybe people would be more willing to enter our field with us and would be more excited versus feeling excluded because they didn't know the right way to ask a question on social media or misphrased something or, you know, I don't know, felt were made to feel like they weren't smart or worthy. Um, and, but I do feel like there's a shift. And I don't know, you know, it, there's a shift because we're aware of the divide, just like we are in politics, just we are like as we are in some of the geographic uh, things in other geographical regions that are going on in the world. Right. There are just people on two sides like we are we've become a binary world um, in that sense. And I think when that happens, there's going to be a revolution and hopefully we swing more to one side and then eventually find that happy medium, right? And that, I feel like that's happening in race relations. I feel like that's happening in politics. I feel like it's happening in ABA, which is just a microcosm of, you know, the whole world. So I hope there's going to be a shift because social media, it should be, it, it's got so much potential to help us and to connect us because we are kind of out there on our own little island working with clients, not seeing people. So it's our only way to connect some days. So I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question. I have such a love-hate relationship with it. Yeah, I, I share in the love-hate relationship. And when I tell people about the part where I am disappointed in, in social media or in the behavior on social media, um, they kind of laugh. They're like, wait a second, behavior babe is being critical. You made your career on social media. And I'm like, well, you know, it's evolved over time. And I was in my late twenties when behavior babe and social media was really happening. And now I'm in my early forties. I'm a different person. Society is different, but I really appreciate how you talked about things that are happening in the world around us. You know, had we had social media during 9-11, what would that have looked like? 
you know, had we had social media during, or had they had, you know, social media during the Kennedy or John Lennon assassinations, what would that have looked like? And I don't think it's anything new to find that people are divided. I think where it's hard is, you know, we're humans too. And we have, you know, shitty days. And sometimes we say shitty things. And what I want people, and I would just kind of echo your sentiment of, of shifting. And, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, maybe just don't say anything at all. (laughs) Or say, DM me. I, I have some time. I have the ability to engage with you. And I, I think that's so interesting because we talk about in person, we're all so engaging and wonderful and enlightened, you know, come talk to us. And I'm not sure that it's the same people who are uh, contributing, but sometimes it could be to those toxic interactions. And we want, and we need more behavior analysts in the field, in the world. We want, and we need more compassionate behavior changers in this world. Um, But something that's super interesting is as we look back at our history, the word compassion and behavior analysis goes back to the seventies. And people are talking about that and talking about how important it is to get social validity, how much it is to care, but the heart of ABA. And so is it refinding the heart? Is it just that we've, as a group, are have shifted so much? And so many of us are now early career analysts and those of people like me who are seasoned, that's the word I love, like sprinkled a couple of delicious herbs on us. Uh, you know, there's going to be a point in time where we also see there's uh, a generation uh, above me who are going to be retiring, who are going to be saying, uh, here's the baton. And so why would we do anything but encourage more people to, you know, kind of get on board with helping make some pretty critical positive changes in the world. So I hope that there's a shift. I think when I see the shift, I sometimes wonder if it's because I've uh, cultivated my environment as such, you know, the people I hang out with, the individuals I associate with, I get dense amounts of access to kind and compassionate people, which does help offset uh, the negative interactions that occur. Yeah. Well, I think it, you know, you attract certain things, right. And obviously if you're out there being kind and compassionate, but I also kind of want to speak to what you said about your original sort of site, you weren't there to like, you know, um, gain anything behavior babe was a helpful resource for people so i think that social media i don't know why it started or what its purpose was but i don't think you can compare your mission with some of the ways that it's being used to sort of manipulate people and make people feel bad right like that was that's the best of what social media is the behavior babe page which you know gives people resources and information and links and you spent a lot of time and created a lot of amazing content and you gave it away to people for free. Uh, that's what's different, right? From back then to right now, we've also got this entrepreneurial, more sort of capitalistic movement, which is also great because I think that's why people are creating new and interesting endeavors. And this new generation is definitely much more entrepreneurial than, than we ever were, right? But um, I think another thing is we have to get fluent in dealing with people that are from a different generation because they do speak differently and they have had different experiences and contexts in many ways because we didn't grow up with a Facebook and Instagram. Instagram, we are sheltered, right? We, you know, we had bullying, but it wasn't a big deal. You went home and it was over. You didn't have the entire school bashing you on Instagram or Facebook. So any of the, you know, sort of 
I don't know, predispositions that teenagers have that we might have had that we share with these new generations. They just weren't as uh, manipulatable because we didn't have social media letting people feel like, oh, there's other, you know, jerks out there that I can commiserate with and attack Mm -hmm. with. We just didn't, the the bad people didn't know that other bad people existed. So they They didn't know how to get a hold of them. They didn't know how to get a hold of them. So they had to hide (laughs) in their own little basements. And now they're like, oh, there's others and let's get together and, you know, band together. So I think that's part of it like we don't even we can't even imagine like what those horrible middle school experiences that no, we for sure gosh. had but imagine facebook on top of you know the mean girls that we faced and all that stuff so i don't know i guess compassion looks different and i think i don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people know that aba was compassionate in the 70s because of some of those articles that are out there some of the opinions about some of the work that was being done or i should say the work that's being highlighted i'm pretty sure more compassionate work was being done than abusive work which i put in quotes but of course what do people focus on like the one negative study of, you know, um, it's human nature, right? I, I teach a course and let's say I have 40 students in the class and 39 said that they really enjoyed an activity. And one was incredibly critical. Which one do I spend my night thinking about, you know, or talking? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Because we, it, we, because I think we receive criticism so heavily and I think in general, we do not receive gratitude with as much intention as we take in the negativity. So when somebody does something wrong, it's like, oh, yeah, like we can all relate to they're wrong. It's wrong. Like I, like I was saying, like we're humans. Um, there's two talks that I give and I just want to I'm just going to plug them here because I think they relate or why they've become talks. And one is difficult conversations how to have them. And I tell people I'm not an expert at, at solving problems, but I am somebody who's found myself uh, advocating, uh, which means that when you stand for something, there's the against uh, position that also comes into play. Not that it is always binary in that way. Um, and that one has been really interesting. I've given it to different audiences, most recently to uh, education administrators on mm-hmm. the language that we use and the way that we talk and how we make matters worse. But another talk I have just recently crafted is called the five C's for consideration. And I want to layer these. I thought it was going to be an ethics like way to think of the world. And instead, I think it's actually a really uh, perhaps helpful strategy for how to think of the world in general. And since, you know, since I care about you so much and anyone who's listening at the end of this gets a bonus, uh, I'll tell you real quick what they are. Five C's, because it's not a surprise, is curiosity, Mm -hmm. compassion, competence, culture, and context. And if we can pause and explore those five areas, I think we're going to be better poised and positioned to share perhaps more meaningful and insightful feedback, even if it's critical. I love that. I think, you know, it's it's so basic, right? It's kind of like treat everybody Uh, Like you don't know that if they're going through something, don't assume the worst about people right off the bat. Like maybe they're just making a mistake. Like people are not intentionally out there trying to be harmful. And I love that. I love context as a word. Um, I love the idea that like, if you look at context, things look very different, right? Like topography versus function. So I definitely um, 
I will come to that talk. That sounds like an <laughs> well, important you. talk. You should, by the way, you should let me know um, when it is so we can promote it too, because our students who finish, they're always looking for, you know, stuff that's going to really set them up for their early career. So we we like to promote a lot of like uh, uh, cultural competency, supervision, like early supervisor stuff. And then of course, just anything that makes you a better person, I feel like will make you a better behavior analyst as well. Well, thank you for that. I think it's going to, the, the live presentation will occur uh before probably we air this episode but it is okay. it is going to be hosted on behavior live and one thing i love about that platform is that it's going to be available for on demand viewing afterwards so oh. you don't have to attend it live to get it but it is something that i'm very interested in presenting on because as i get feedback from people it becomes a new presentation as you know as you have each new course course or cohort or group you get information about how the field is changing and what it's looking like and i know you have to pivot to stay relevant and yeah. i just want to thank you as well i think what you've contributed to people's confidence and camaraderie and creating a community for people who may not have established that in their journey thus far that's very powerful and I think those relationships, as we were talking about, are what hopefully will help heal part of our field and yeah. and and help us move forward together. Donna, before we end today, I can't believe our time has gone so fast. I want to make sure that people know either how to get a hold of you or get um, information about what you offer. Where should they go to find you? Absolutely. Um, well, if you go to passthebigabaexam.com, you'll find links to all of our social stuff. You can also join our newsletter. We've got lots of cool, exciting things. Um, and if you want to chat with me, you can email me at Donna at passthebigabaexam.com, or you can email the company at info at passthebigabaexam.com. Thank you again for your time, for this knowledge, your contribution. Mm -hmm. I will definitely make sure that we have those links and everything to your online screen handles available for people who have been uh, listening this this far into the episode and, and staying mm -hmm. on for hopefully future episodes. Um, and I just want to encourage anybody who wants to learn more about applied behavior analysis to visit www.behaviorbabe.com. <laughs>